episode 104 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. G'day everyone, uh, Dan Bolton here, uh, aka That Mallard Guy. I'm uh, currently flying uh, Grumman Mallards over in Australia. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to episode 104 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams and I am your host. Today, I have a special podcast. I have one that I've wanted to do for a while. First off, it is a podcast about someone in Australia. This is the very first time I've had someone from Australia on the podcast. So I'm really excited to, to dive into the, the ins and outs of becoming a pilot in Australia and kind of what the career progression looks like. Today, I'm talking with Daniel Bolton. Daniel is a pilot on a Grumman Mallard. If you don't follow him on Instagram, go do that right now. It's that Mallard guy. If you don't know what a Grumman Mallard is, also go follow him so you can see it. He has one of the coolest jobs you can imagine. I mean, just the type of flying that he does and the plane that he flies is kind of second to none. He just really, really is enjoying his career and has had a very, very cool path to get to where he was. It even involved him going to Vietnam to go fly, which I mean, there's some cool stories there to be told. It's it's flying in Vietnam. So I'm really excited to share this podcast with everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for 500 reviews. I'm going to be on vacation in the next couple days and I'm going to be on vacation for 16 days. So I'm going to be picking out those five t-shirts to give away to my five favorite reviews. So thank you so much for leaving those reviews. Also check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pilot the pilot. I appreciate all the love and support. Thank you so much. Aviation. I hope you are staying strong and washing your hands and staying safe during this time. If you're essential and you're flying, go fly, go enjoy it and consider it therapy for what's going on right now. But Aviation. I don't want to keep you any longer. That's all I got for you right now. So without any further ado, here is Daniel Bolton, that Mallard pilot. Dan, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. G'day, Justin. Yeah, really good to be here with you, mate. I think I got the raw end of the stick, though. It's a bit early here in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> um, especially when we stuffed up at times, so, you know. Yeah, but, you uh, definitely no, got the raw you, man. For sure. <laughs> it's uh, 4.20 over by me and it's uh, in the afternoon. What time is it by you right now? Uh, it's 6.50 now, but um, I've been up since about quarter past five putting makeup on for this interview. So, um, <laughs> yeah, no. It's, well, you uh, look great. No, it's a bit earlier this time. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, first thing before we start, I just want to say how cool it sounds that you say day and mate. I wish that Americans could say that and I wish that they would sound cool saying it, but we just sound like a bunch of idiots. <laughs> Yeah, well, like, and, and probably I should probably apologize because there's a fair bit of Aussie slang that I'll probably throw in this interview that um, maybe you and your listeners won't understand. So I apologize in advance for that. Oh, no worries. We can, we'll decode it later. We'll make it sound cool. Don't worry. Yeah, bring your Aussie dictionary. That's yeah, for sure. right. I got it out right now. <laughs> All right, man. Well, cool. Let's get started. I want to know kind of about you. I mean, I follow you. You have one of the cooler profiles I've seen and just the stuff that you do, the plane that you fly. And just the scenery that you have is just unbelievable. So I'm really excited to talk and dig into to how you got there. But first, I want to talk more about why you became a pilot. What was the original inspiration for you even wanting to start to fly? Um, yeah, it's it's um, it's a good question to start with. My background, um, it's it's a hard one to explain. I guess first of all, flying it's it's in the blood for us, for myself and my family. Um, my old man's a pilot. 
Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about him shortly, but my uncle was also a 747 captain at Qantas for 40 years. Um, and my grandfather was in World War II a Spitfighter pilot and also Tiger Moth instructor. So I guess you could say flying's in the blood. Um, but growing up, um, even though my old man was a pilot, he was actually in the police force majority of my, my growing up. And um, I my parents separated when I was younger, so I didn't get to see my dad a lot. Uh, when I was about 12, because um, my dad had a really big passion for flying, he um, ended up buying a 172 just privately. Um, so we'd kind of go on little adventures um, with him. I remember the first one we went on when I was like probably about 12, 13 years old with my sister, who's a bit younger than me. Um, we went out to this place called Marimbula. I'm, I'm from Geelong, Victoria, by the way, um, down in, in Australia. And um, we went on this trip. And um, it was such a bad day, man. And uh, we were we we ended up landing in this paddock uh, or in this you know grass airstrip um, on the way down there because of weather. My sister was throwing up. Like it wasn't really a good introduction to flying at all. Um, so even though it was in the in the family, I kind of wasn't exposed to it as much as a kid. But um, I think when I was about 15, 16, Dad decided to leave the police force um, to upgrade his 172 to a 206 and start a seaplane company down in Geelong. Um, we've got a beautiful little waterfront down there. Um, it had a seaplane operating out of there probably 10 years prior to this, and um, so Dad decided to, to kind of go out on a limb there and, and start up his own company. So I think by the time I was kind of getting at the end of my schooling, um, yeah, flying was becoming um, a bit more prominent in my life. Um, so, yeah, that's probably how I got into it, uh, mainly. That's really cool. I mean, it sounds like you have a very unique experience with it, with uh, getting thrown into 172 on a bad day and not very conducive for someone wanting to love to fly, especially with your sister throwing up in the plane. <laughs> I'm yeah. guessing she probably didn't want to go back in a plane after that experience. No, no, exactly. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a great introduction, but... Um, yeah, as I got older and older, I kind of grew into it, kind of was kind of seeing what dad was doing more often. And, and I think by the end of year 12, um, it kind of turned into a bit of a no-brainer that when I left school, I'd, I'd end up going and, and doing my license. So how old were you? You were 12 when you took that one flight or was it before that? Um, I, I'd been on kind of other private um, small flights before that with my old man, but that was, um, I think that was the first trip we did with him when he bought that plane. Um, I think the rest of them were just him hiring small planes, but that was probably, yeah, one of the first real memories. Um, yeah, with, on that trip down to Marimbula. Yeah. How long was it until you actually started to actually maybe kind of progressing your training and kind of considered a career? What was the time difference between that flight and when you started taking it serious? Like, man, this is my life. Like I want to do this. Um, yeah, I kind of feel guilty saying it sometimes. Like I think, you know, like I've heard a few of your other interviews and people saying, you know, when you're trying, when you're in year twelve, year eleven, you're trying to figure out what you want to do for the rest of your life. It's such a daunting, um, daunting process. And I, I don't think I was, I really knew what I wanted to do. I was playing a lot of sport, enjoying that. Um, but yeah, through year twelve, it, it really became like I think, I think I should probably go down this path. You know, my old man was helping me out a lot with with being exposed to aviation, I guess. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of decided to go down that path once I left school. And, like, I mean, I, once I got into the training and stuff, I really enjoyed it um, and, and got right into it. Um, and then once I got my commercial license and 
um, got ended up flying with him. I think really passion for aviation really took off from there. What uh, what is so? I've talked with uh, pilots in Europe. I've talked with pilots in the states. Obviously, some in the Caribbean. What does it look like to become a pilot in Australia? What is kind of the process? Is it? I don't know how much you know about what we do with the FAA in the states or versus IASA. Is it similar to one of those, or is it completely different? Um, at the moment, I, I believe CASA, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority here in Australia, we're trying to we're changing the rules at the moment. We're trying to implement things that are more in line with the FAA. Um, we've just put in the part. 61, um, part 141, 142 type stuff. So it's all transitioning over to that kind of system. But when when I started to train, um, first of all, um, I, I trained at this little airport, Geelong, Geelong Airport, which was, it was literally five minutes from my house, which was awesome. Um, so Geelong, where I grew up, is about an hour's drive from Melbourne. And if this airport wasn't there, um, I'd probably would have had to commute an hour and 20 to get to another flight school to do some training. So you know, that difference could have quite simply been whether I was sitting here talking to you today or not, you know. Um, it was it, it was two turns out of my house five minutes down the road and, and I was at this little airport. But um, that airport was a little um, a little grass or gravel strip. Um, it was a tiny little donger as an office, had two little classrooms. Um, it was a very relaxed, relaxed vibe. Um, and, and I guess another thing is that um, it wasn't conducive of really falling in love with aviation either. You know, it was like lots of weeds growing everywhere. It wasn't really a, a spectacular airport to kind of um, to fall in love with aviation, you know? Yeah, but it was close, which was, as you said, probably the most yeah, exactly. important thing. That's, that's all that matters. Yeah, yeah, it's like I'm not driving an hour and a half just to go do some flight lessons, you know? <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I followed um, the process of getting – um, I'm pretty sure I got my GFPT. I don't know if you guys have that over there. I've heard of that before. It's no, a general flying, that? general flying progress test. So basically, I think it's like a recreational pilot's license now. So it allows you to fly within 20, 20 miles of the of the training area, or basically, yeah, inside inside your own airport's training area, um, and then let you go fly solo. Yeah, fly, and you can take passengers up. It's kind of like a it's like a mini private license in a in a confined area. So you can get that after about 30 hours or something. Um, you have to then, go take a practical with like a, an examiner or do you go up with your instructor who signs you off for that? It's just, I think it's just like the chief flying instructor at the, at the club or at the, at the airport there. He just kind of ticks it off. It's not as, from memory, it wasn't as, um, as strict as like a, a private license or commercial, but it was, there was some sort of practical yeah, flight test that you'd have to pass. Yeah. So then I did that and then, um, Continued on with my private license. I got my private and then um, just followed the commercial. So at the time, it was 150-hour commercial syllabus, um, included all your navs and whatnot and a certain amount of instrument flying and, and a, uh, yeah, that was a, I think that was really about it. No no twin or anything like that. And, um, yeah, it was a part-time thing for me. I, I, t- I took a loan out for it myself. Um, I was working casually at a supermarket to help pay for the loan and, and pay for my flying. Um, and yeah, about 150 hours and about a year and a half and I had my commercial license. So you got your private and then your commercial, do your instrument after that or is it in between both of those? No, so I just did I just did my commercial. I didn't do my instrument rating until uh, 2000 and, well, this was in 2009 and I don't think I got my instrument rating until about 2005 or six or something so 
Uh, sorry, 2016. Sorry. Oh, no, you're good. So yeah, we started training similar time. I mean, I started in 2010, but 29 when you're getting your commercial, that was one of the worst times. I mean, other than probably right now to, to start becoming a pilot, there was like no jobs whatsoever. I don't know if it was the same in Australia, but in the States, you had to have like 2000 hours to be a CFI. Um, flight instructors are getting paid like 10 grand to work at a regional airline. You were getting paid minimum wage and sleeping. And some people said they're sleeping on benches in between flights. Like mm. it was pretty crazy. I don't know if that's how it was over there too. Well, I do remember like, so 2007 is when I finished year 12 and then 2008 is when I finished, I started my training. And, um, I remember my old man was encouraging me that like the whole time through year 12 was just like the pilots, they're, they're screaming for pilots at the moment. You know, you should get your license, you get straight into an airline. And then it kind of at the end of my training, 2009, it was just like, where are all the jobs kind of thing. It seemed to really go, really ebb and flow, you know, back then. It de- yeah. definitely does. Yeah. Your, da- your dad was kind of right though. They, they, everyone does need pilots and we still will need pilots. It's just right yeah. now, just, just a little bit of a lull right now, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, did, would you say that aviation was kind of like a love for you? I know you said it was in your family. I know it's kind of like in your blood, but was it like uh, an immediate where you fell in love with it or did it take some time? Cause everyone's different about it. Like it can be kind of intimidating when you have a family of aviation and they love it and you kind of feel like you need to love it too. But did it, like I said, did it happen immediately or was it over time? Um, yeah, like I said, like kind of growing up with my old man, not, not being, um, kind of at home, we'd see each other pretty regularly, but, um, with parents split up, it, I guess it wasn't kind of in my face as much as maybe other parents who have kids who are pilots, you know? Um, but, as soon as I, I think as soon as I started flying and, and doing the lessons and whatnot, it really grew on me very fast. And then as soon as I started flying with my old man uh, on the seaplane, that's where a, a real passion for seaplane flying, especially and aviation really, yeah, really took off. That's leading me to another question. When you were doing your training, was your initial goal to, to be like, uh, was it your uncle or your grandpa, the 747 pilot for Qantas for 40 years? Was it your goal to be like them or was it to kind of go find your own path and kind of where you are now with the seaplanes? Um, to be honest, I really didn't, I didn't really have a goal. I don't think like, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just trying to get my commercial done, um, and kind of see where it took me from there. Like I said, I was, I was 18 years old playing a lot of sport. Um, you know, I think that was taking up more of my time than actual concentrating on flying was. And, uh, like most 18 year olds are, but, um, I, I, you know, I wasn't guaranteed a job with my old man either. Like it wasn't, it wasn't so much like you get your, get your license and I'll give you a job kind of thing. It was just, um, yeah, I think at the time it was just, I was just kind of having fun and, and, and ticking that off. And I knew that it would kind of lead to something at the end. I I really didn't know what it was at the time though. But, um, you know, there was probably about six months after I got my commercial to when I actually started flying, um, with my dad, um, as a job. And I think between that time there, I think that must've been when the time when there was no, um, jobs kind of around and, and yeah, I didn't really know where I was going to go and what I was chasing. So yeah, a bit of an unknown at that time for sure. Yeah. And you, when you say you got a job with your dad, you're flying seaplanes there? Yeah. So it came to, um, it was about Christmas time and, and his job was very, uh, seasonal. So it was just a single pilot, single, um, aircraft, little joy flight operation off the water on a 206, um, straight float 206. Um, and during the summer months, dad really, the business really took off and, and was very busy. Um, during the winter it was quite, you know, very quiet, but, um, so he kind of wanted another guy just to help him out for that summer. And, and 
you know, at that time, Dad had been kind of running the business for probably three or four years, and anyone who has a has their own business would know, like, when you're running it by yourself, it, it consumes seven days of the week, kind of thing. So, um, so he was. I think when he got me on board, I think he realised how how good it was to just have a little break himself. So, um, I I, I kind of got on with him that that summer there, and then basically almost took over the business for him, flying wise, so he could. He could kind of run the books a bit more and take a bit more of a break and enjoy his life a bit more. Um, And I did all the hard slogging down at the waterfront there. What was it like having your first kind of commercial job and doing that kind of flying? Uh, It was was pretty cool. Hey, like, I mean, I talked a bit about before, like the airport not being an attractive, really attractive place to, to hang around, you know, like on the side of a highway, weeds growing everywhere, gravel and, you know, um, I was my first job was at the waterfront. There was tourists walking around. You know, there's boats in the water. It was it was on the water. You know, restaurants, people just having fun, and that's what I think. That's what really attracted me to seaplane, um, the seaplane lifestyle. You know, you're not really at an airport. You're hanging out on the water. There's jet skis taxiing out there with you, like boats, and you know, it's it's just such a different lifestyle. You know. Um, so it was it was really cool, and, and and that time of the year, it's a really fun place to be. It's it's quite hot. The days are really long. Um, so yeah, it's just a really cool atmosphere. What kind of planes were you flying when you first started? Um, with that job, that was just yeah, a, with the, a two with six. the plane. A two yeah, six. so it was just a Cessna two hundred six on straight floats. Um, that was the only one we had. So what? Uh, so obviously, are are you still is where you're at now the same company, or have you transitioned to another company with the Mallard? No, not at all. So. Um, so that was in the south, um, in Geelong there. Um, I worked with my old man there for a year and a half and I mean, because it was only a one pilot operation, I was kind of, uh, I was, uh, on, let's just say, well, well down near minimum wage. Yeah. <laughs> and to on call out. and flying all the time, probably too, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, um, so I was working with him and, and that kind of, it, it kind of was a bit of a stepping stone because of that, you know, I was still kind of working at the supermarket on Sunday nights to get the extra time and a half and, you know, and, uh, and kind of that was, that was my real paying job at the supermarket. Um, so then I really, I needed to kind of step out and, and kind of actually approach another, uh, another operation. So I targeted this company in the Sundays in North Queensland. So a big, big kind of step from South to North. Um, I targeted them for probably a year and a half and had an interview um, after flying with my dad for you know a year and a half or so, and then um, yeah, I was lucky enough to score a job up there in the Whit Sundays, which was that at the time there it was a that was a dream come true. That really was a cool place to to work and and fly. What kind of flying were they doing? Was it seaplanes as well? Yeah, so that was that was all seaplane based. Um, the Whitsunday Islands is a group of seventy four islands on near the Great Barrier Reef, or it's on the Great Barrier Reef basically. Um, so we had caravans and beavers on amphibs. Um, um, it was a cool airport in this kind of valley called Shoot Harbour Airport. Um, it was the kind of airport that made you attracted to flying. It had like a cafe right on the runway. It was only one runway down this valley, and you know palm trees everywhere and um, it, it just, it was a cool atmosphere as well. And, um, we'd go out there and take pe- take um, passengers out to, um, Whitehaven beach, which is, um, one of the best beaches in Australia. Um, we'd just go sit on the beach for an hour and a half with them, um, anchor up there. And then we'd also take people out to the Great Barrier Reef. We had our own, uh, 
semi-submersible boat, so like a, a coral viewing um, boat moored out of the reef there, and we'd go land inside the reef um, and then dock to that boat, and then we'd turn from aeroplane captain to boat captain and um, drive this drive this boat down into a snorkeling area where we'd take people snorkeling the Great Barrier Reef for an hour. So, yeah, that was that was a dream come true kind of job. That that was that was a really cool laid back um, lifestyle and and just amazing flying, especially flying you know beavers and then onto the caravan as well. Yeah. So the type of flying you were doing right there is like what every pilot dreams of doing. You know, it's like even pilots that are flying for the airlines right now, like they chose the airlines because that's where most of the money is and it's kind of like a secure job. But then when they're, when they're flying, they still wish that they could do the type of flying that you're doing. Do you? Was it hard for you to, I'm, I'm guessing it's the same in Australia where maybe the, the, you make more money as an airline pilot versus maybe something like seaplanes or aerial survey or do anything like that. Was it a difficult decision for you to kind of go the seaplane life or is it more, do you value more of like the quality of flying and the fun of flying you do rather than maybe the money or is it different there where you can make more doing what you're doing? Um, certainly can't make more doing what I'm doing. <laughs> you can definitely make more uh, in the airlines, that's for sure, but um, I, I was just straight away attracted just to just to how amazing, you know, flying seaplanes was, and there wasn't ever really a factor of like I need to earn more money for this. It was just this was this was cool. This was um, amazing lifestyle. The flying was great. Um, yeah, that, that's basically what attracted me to it. I, I never really was was attracted to the financial side of, of flying for the airlines um you know the suit and tie and 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 leather shoes don't really uh match match with me very well i don't think i think the sandals and 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 shorts and unbuttoned shirt are a lot um a lot easier to wear to work um yeah i think that yeah that's that's basically what drew me to, to flying seaplanes was just the cool you know i was going to the beach every day i was serving champagne to you know you know, families and and people in bikinis and walking along the beach and sitting having my lunch on one of Australia's best beaches and and then taking them out snorkeling the reef. So it's hard to beat that, man. It really is. And I, I know you say you can make more money and I'm doing other things. And even what I do right now, you can make more money in the airlines. I fly corporate, so I fly more of the business jets. And when it's kind of like a bigger company that I fly for, they're more considered like a private airline in a way. But you definitely, the type of flying we do is a lot of fun and we don't know where we're going to go. So one day we could be in uh, the Cayman Islands. The next day we could be uh, flying in Aspen, which is in Colorado and surrounded by mountains and is a huge uh, ski destination. The next day we could be in LA or New York or by the beach or in the mountains, like I said, in Canada. We could be in South America. Like just the diversity is so much fun for me and knowing where you're going. I, I feel like there's nothing against airline flying and one day I might fly for the airlines, but just doing the same thing kind of over and over again might get a little boring. And that's what's so great about aviation that if you think that way, you can do whatever you want. Like there's so many jobs, exactly, yeah. even if you're in Australia, like you can follow, they can follow you and they can go try to take after your job and see what they can do. Like, it's just so cool what you can do. Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah, that's like this, the same thing for me. Like I, I think exactly what you said, like, you know, being out, just having that diversity um, and, and the airlines, like I'll probably one day have to kind of go down the airlines to have some sort of uh, lifestyle, maybe like that in Australia um, where, you know, uh, I'm paid a bit more or whatever and living in a place in Australia that I, that I kind of want to be at. But yeah, for the time being, it's all about kind of having the most fun and I'm certainly having that right now, that's for sure. Absolutely. And I always talk to people and always try to say, it's like, 
have a plan. Like if you want to go to the airlines, like set that as your goal. But if you have other cool things that pop up, you know, kind of, kind of seed them out and see what they do. Cause once you get to the airlines, you're never going to want to go backwards and go back to flying seaplanes or go back to the Mallard or in my case, go back to flying a PC 12 or a caravan with freight. Like do what sounds fun to you to continue to get you to the best position for your dream job, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like? So how, I guess the first question is, when did you first start flying seaplanes? How many hours did you have? Um, the first, so I, I, I probably had about 190, maybe 200 hours. Um, so I did my commercial, um, kind of fluffed around a little bit, trying to look for work, I guess, and then realizing there wasn't really much out there. And then, um, yeah, when my dad needed a hand, for the summer, I did my float rating up in Melbourne on a 185 on floats. Um, so I, yeah, probably had about 200 hours. I'd I'd say um, that's that's when I started. Yeah, that was that was my first job really, and so that was it was a really good start, and I was super lucky to have that. How tough was it for you to make the transition to be a seaplane pilot? Because I don't have my seaplane rating. I've always wanted to get it, but having making that switch with such little time was that tough? Was it kind of intimidating, or can we have you done it? Have you been in a seaplane where you're pretty comfortable because that's where your dad was flying and had that that job? Yeah, I mean, like probably probably sounds like you know having with my old man having a um, being a seaplane pilot that. Um, I was exposed to seaplanes like all the time, but that does wasn't really the case. I'd kind of only really go down and see him kind of every now and again. Um, so I wasn't flying in his plane a, a fair bit, but um, I think when it came to it and 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 doing that seaplane uh, endorsement, I think probably having a little time was probably better in a way because I wasn't I, I didn't have all of these. Um, negative traits, I guess, used to flying land planes all the time. I was still pretty bare commercial guy. So um, I guess it's just like stepping up into a different airplane at that stage, you know, you know, like stepping up from a 152 to 172, you know what I mean? Yeah, except that there's water instead of land, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. No, that's cool. I've always wanted to fly a seaplane. It always looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, they're so good, man. You should definitely um, definitely go out there and, and, and have a go one day, get that rating done. All right, so you're talking about being in the Great Barrier Reef and flying those planes. Is that the same company you're at now, or did you actually transition to another job to to fly the current plane you're flying? No, so um, I was there about four and a half years. Um, so I, I got some beaver time, um, get got up onto the caravan, and then we mixed between. There was never like, oh, you're the caravan guy now. It was always just a, you know, one day you're flying the beaver, one day you're flying the caravan, which was a really cool mix. Um, after about four and a half years, I was kind of, I mean, the company that I was there with wasn't, um, it, it was, they were pretty tough times. It was, you know, maintaining seaplanes is a very hard thing. So, um, you know, sometimes we were a bit worried about what was what was happening right around the corner, if you know what I mean. And um, I kind of felt like I needed to take a step out and, and maybe, um, maybe branch out in my aviation a little bit. That's where I, I, I got my... Um, instrument rating done. Um, just did that by myself, uh, with a guy down in Melbourne. And, um, so once I ticked that off, I then I applied for a job up in Cairns, uh, fit further North. So we're, we're up near the tropics now. Um, and I was actually got a job flying as a second officer or, or sorry, as a first officer, second pilot on a caravan, um, doing kind of regular flying, um, out to Aboriginal communities in the North there. Um, was that seaplane flying or is that just a uh, no, 
just just wheeled flying. Um, so it was kind of an introduction to IFR, I guess. Um, so we have this rule in Australia uh, at the time. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's still there, but to be a command pilot for uh, a regular, we call it RPT. I don't think you've got the same name over there, but regular public transport, um, which is basically scheduled flying service. Um, we, you needed 120 hours of planned IFR. Um, so I didn't have that. And stupidly, um, what I did um, as a co-pilot on that machine doing those exact runs didn't count as planned IFR time. It was only um, that was just co-pilot time. So um, the only way I could log that planned IFR time was to be in kind of an IFR flight myself. Um, and we didn't do a lot of charters in the caravans. We'd only did these regular services. Uh, all the charters in the company went to kind of the twins generally. Um, so we'd got, we'd got um, random freight, freight runs in the caravan every now and again that I could go by myself because it wasn't a regular route. Um, so I was very, very slowly logging these command um, hours, but it was taking – it was like six months and I only had like 80 kind of thing. Um, the rest of it was just – in the right-hand seat of this caravan um, flying IFR. So um, it was a real slow build-up. And um, I remember one day I was sitting on this, this little island, uh, Lizard Island, up in the north of Queensland there. I had just some sort of charter out there. Um, and it was like a day-weight charter and I was kind of reading the job job ads, um, as most pilots do. And um, this job for um, a seaplane pilot in Vietnam came up and they wanted – 3,000 hours total time and um, it was like 1,500 hours on caravans on floats and IFR and and I, I nearly ticked to 3,000 at the time and I had a lot of caravan time at that stage and um, with the IFR rating. And so I sent this kind of flick through an email, just said, oh, I just want to find a little bit more about this job. And then like by the time I flew back from Lizard on because there was no, no internet reception out there and, um, or mobile phone service, I had about three or four Skype missed calls and all this kind of stuff just harassing me. I was like, "Ooh, this is a bit more serious than I was kind of hoping." You know, he's just kind of, just kind of inquiring as to what was what was uh, what was the ad referring to. You know, what was the job description? I guess. And um, yeah, I, I ended up um, doing a phone interview and talking to my wife and and kind of being like, oh, um, "This six month contract in Vietnam came up and." Um, took that after being at this other company for about eight months. So I ended up, ended up moving over to Vietnam for six months. Oh, wow. What was it like flying to Vietnam? Um, it was, it was pretty cool. Um, like it was, it was totally different, man. So like, um, general aviation in Vietnam just does not exist at all. So I think this was one of the first companies in, in Vietnam to, to start up basically small airplanes, um, so what that meant was, um, so I was based out of Hanoi and um, we were basically fighting for um, space between all of the airlines that are operating there regularly. You know, we were, I think one of the air traffic controllers once said, like, why would you let the bicycle go in front of the car? Like we were the bicycle and they were the car, you know what I mean? Um, but we also had to follow, that meant we had to follow air routes. So there was no such thing as going, oh, I'm just going to fly VFR from A to B, you know, like you had to follow an air route to get there. So um, if you imagine, say, like a triangle, um, we were flying from Hanoi to to Halong Bay. Um, if you can imagine those two being directly linked by one line of a triangle, we'd have to go all the way down the bottom one way because that was an air route, and then we'd have to go back, make like a 120-degree turn to come back up another air route to get into our destination. Like, 
it was just yeah, it was just super weird. Um, That's frustrating. And, yeah. <laughs> what would be like uh, a twenty minute been, flight turns out to be like an hour. It can yeah. Sometimes it was like an hour and a half for like a twenty minute flight. That's it was crazy. It was ridiculous. Um, but because we only went to the same spot all the time, they kind of got used to us a little bit over time. And um, but yeah, the flying was good over there. It was it was pretty cool. It was two crew. Um, we had like local Vietnamese co-pilots on board with us. Um, so um, yeah, made it made it interesting. It was good to have them when um, when ATC couldn't understand you, and then they just dropped some Vietnamese to to explain what was going on. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. the the Australian there. accent was very hard to understand for these guys. That's for sure. What kind of pilots? Uh, so was it mostly Australian pilots, or was other Western type of pilots in there that would come fly? Is that usually what they would go after? Um, so there was only one other guy there at the time. He was a Canadian um, seaplane captain. Um, they'd had previous, a couple of Aussies before it was, it was only relatively new when I started there, probably two or three years old. Um, and they've had a couple of other Canadians. Um, but yeah, there was only one other, one other expat captain and, and then we had about four Vietnamese co-pilots. So, um, yeah, the first six months that I did there, it was just, um, just me and this other guy and then, um, yeah, with the, with the locals. What was, uh, what were you, were you transporting passengers and freight? Was it kind of like a, uh. Uh, the communities that needed supplies, or what was what were you mainly flying? So it was just it was a it was a caravan EX, the, the bigger grand caravan on floats, um, which was cool. G one thousand, everything, all IFR. Um, it was just going to the one location, which was Hullen Bay, um, which is a big big junk boat um, group of islands. You know, you go out on a boat for overnight expeditions um, into Hullen Bay. There, pretty famous spot of Vietnam. Um, so we were just flying tourists back and forth. Um, there was a road option to get there. It was about a four hour drive from Hanoi to Halong Bay. And then they could get the seaplane in and fly around the islands when they got there. And, and, um, then they'd go straight on their, on their boat and off they'd go for a sail. So, and then we did also some scenic flying once we were there off the island that we were operating off, um, just around the islands for kind of 15 minutes or so. Do you have any crazy stories about like kind of flying over there other than the fact that you kind of understand ATC or they have crazy weather there at all? Um, crazy stories. I think like flying with the, um, with the Vietnamese guys was, was tough. Um, no offense to the American system, but I think they went over there and, and were rushed through as quickly and as fast as possible and at the most expensive school possible. So these guys did kind of get the rough end of the stick, and for for the Vietnamese, they um, they're generally trying to get into the airline, so they'll get their license, they'll try and get an airline job. But we were kind of getting the guys who were kind of not getting into the airlines. Um, so their their hand flying skills and and whatnot were weren't really up to standard um, at the time that I was there, and um, yeah, it was it was tough kind of flying with those guys sometimes. Um, but, you know, I, I really try my best to kind of show them what I'd known from flying floats and, and, and try to give them as much of a hand as possible and get their skills up. We did, we did end up upgrading one, um, one guy to a command, um, which was a pretty cool experience. I did a lot of ARCUS flying with him. Um, he was in the left-hand seat. Um, yeah, um, there wasn't really that many... <laughs> interesting stories over there. It was a pretty mundane kind of back and forth type job. I think, yeah, like just being over there um, with these, actually I do have one good story actually. We, there was an airport down at Catby 
It's this place near Halong Bay. We had to do basically because we we're IFR and we were going to was a was a VFR destination. We have to, and and Vietnam was renowned for terrible weather, especially haze and smog and whatnot. Um, we'd have to generally do an ILS into this little local um, airport, um, and then once you get visual, you just stay visual until. And you know sometimes you were flying at like five hundred feet with like a couple of kilometre vis, and like it was pretty crappy. Um, but you always always had that out to go IFR, which was great. But remember one day we couldn't actually we we couldn't actually continue, so we landed at this airport and we jumped out and we went up and it was it was like lunchtime and we went and visited the tower. And um, they'd obviously spoke to us on the radio a fair bit, and so we went and, went and visited them. And they're having this huge big banquet lunch down the bottom. This is dead airport, man. Like there's you know hardly any airports are coming to this place. It's still like a a regional. Um, airport huge big tower and you know big huge runway and whatnot but and we're sitting down there and having this lunch and um there's all sorts of frog legs and all this kind of stuff that they eat in, in vietnam and um there's this bottle it's like a coke bottle without actually i think it was a water bottle without the lid or without the um wrapping around the side sorry so it's just a, a clear plastic bottle and it had this black stuff in it i thought it was a soy sauce and then um one of the guys said i you know one of the tower guys said um you know, do you want to do you want some of this stuff? And I was like, oh, what is it? And, he's, and he said, uh, rice wine. I was like, oh, wow, okay. Um, no, I think I'm fine, thank you. And after after having that experience, uh, it kind of made a lot of sense when we had to deal with these guys in the air, like especially in the late afternoons. You know, <laughs> how much rice wine you had there, buddy? What? <laughs> yeah, things went things went all as they seem over there. Yeah, that's for sure. That's funny. I mean, that's cool, dude. You have like I didn't even realize how like how cool your story is and be so far and the different types of flying you're going to have. I mean, just the fact that you've flown so many cool seaplanes, you've gone to so many cool places. Now you're flying up in Vietnam and you're just like doing, you're just like paving your own way. It's so cool, man. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's been a good journey so far. Yeah. That's for sure. What did, what does your wife say? Did, did she move up there to Vietnam with you or did you, she stayed back in Australia and you kind of went back and forth or what was the family dynamic like? Um. So yeah, we, so she's a helicopter pilot. We we met in the Whitsundays flying and she's flying helis and, and, and then we kind of moved up to Cairns together and um, she was she had a helicopter job there as well. It was, it was a pretty good job for her actually. She's flying EC-130 helicopters, big turbine helicopters. And um, I took this job and um, initially it was just a six-month contract. It was going to get me that IFR time that I was talking about before to come back to this other job and be, be a, go back to being a captain on the caravan and stuff. And... Um, yeah, I was going to just, just do six months, have a bit of fun, do a bit of travel, um, and then come home. And then at the end of the contract, they basically said to me, look, um, we want you to stay again. And just before we went, I went to Vietnam, I actually proposed some money, a wife. And, um, so we had this wedding coming up in September, which was at the end of this contract. So I was like, well, I've got to go back for that. So I'm not missing that. Yeah, I but, have um, to get married, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> she, she'll kill me if, uh, yeah. if I don't come back for that. But, um, after, um, Basically, to sign another six months after that, um, I said, "Look, this is the I'll come back for this much money type thing." Um, and they turned around and said, "Yes." And this money that I was going to get paid over there uh, um, and the international seaplane flying, and you can get paid a lot better than GA flying in Australia, that's for sure. Um, yeah, you're kind of chasing a bit more lucrative contracts over there, but. Um, this much was equivalent to both of our jobs in Cairns. Um, so it was basically like, if you want, 
if you want me to come back, my wife's going to come back over. We'll live over there together. Um, so this is how much I want to get paid. And, and, and I ended up saying yes. So I was like, oh, looks like we're going to have to go back to Vietnam. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the things was, yeah, exactly. Um, one of the things was, was that um, when I did that first contract, we did, as I said, we only had two um, expat captains who could fly. So one of the issues was that of that was, was um, the roster was pretty, um, pretty all over the shop. There was no kind of set days off. So, um, it was, it wasn't a real conducive lifestyle of, of kind of exploring, going traveling for a couple of days at a time, you know? So on this new contract, when my wife came over, we had, uh, we'd hired a third captain from Canada, another guy from Canada and a third captain. And, um, he was going to, we were going to create this roster where we'd have basically a, a nine day fortnight. We'd have a weekend with just two days and then a three day weekend. And then we'd basically be able to go just traveling in a Vietnam or around Asia for three days at a time. So it was going to be cool. Um, anyway, so we had, we got married and we went on a honeymoon, which was to America, which was pretty cool, um, to California. And, um, we, uh, we came back and she then went home, sorted out. We had a, we bought a, a unit over there at the time. So in Cairns and, um, she sorted all that out and she came over just before Christmas. And I think three days after she arrived to Vietnam, um, this other guy that we'd got um, to help us out in Canada, uh, so from, from Canada and Vietnam, he got hit by a car on a scooter. Um, broke his hip in four different places and that was the end of the, uh, the three pods. So it went back to this as per the roster or as per the schedule roster and, um, yeah, unfortunately Jen was stuck kind of going to the gym and, and just sitting at home and, and that time of the year in winter, in Vietnam, the, the haze is terrible. The pollution is terrible. It's one of the most polluted com- uh, countries uh, or locations in the world at that time of the year. Um, so it was not a cool place to be at. Um, but, um, yeah, at that time, um, that was when I kind of got the the message from a friend of mine who used to I used to fly with at um, in the Whitsundays there. Um, he was flying the Mallards at the time up in um, Darwin, Australia, where I am now, and he sent me a message. And said, um, mate, we're we're actually hiring, or we're looking at hiring. One guy's left just last week. He put his put his resignation in. I think it's you know should throw a resume in, and that's kind of that started the trail to kind of getting here. Dude, you've been all over. Like you're talking about. I, I mean, when you mention these these towns in Australia or cities, like I really have no idea where they are. But I was trying to look up a couple, and it sounds like you went from like north to south, and then up to Vietnam, and then Vietnam to Vietnam, and then back to the north, like. You've truly traveled for this job, man. You you've put in the time to <laughs> and the dedication to get to where you are now. It's it's crazy. Yeah, I think from one at one stage, I when I left the Whit Sundays, we had an apartment there that we lived in for a while at a resort, which is which was an epic place. But um, we were living there, and uh, I think by the time I moved into the apartment where we are now in Darwin, which was about a year and a half, maybe just under two years, I think I counted that I'd moved to ten different places. Um, yeah, it was it was hectic. I was so over moving, that's for sure. So, yeah, we've been in this place now for three years, and I'm just like, oh, this is heaven. <laughs> Thank goodness. I don't want to go anywhere else. <laughs> no. What did you? How happy was your wife when you told her that uh, you you have this potential job flying a mallard back in Australia? Was she like, "Thank goodness, I want to go back home. I don't get to do anything," or was she kind of like, "Yeah, I mean, I kind of like it here." Oh, she definitely didn't like it over there. That's for sure. Um, it was tough, but um, it was hard because I mean. 
you know, any time when you're moving and you've got a partner and they've got to try and find work, it's it's always difficult. Um, but when you've got a partner who's in aviation, trying to link up two aviation jobs um, is just almost impossible. I mean, when we moved from the Whitsunnos to Cairns, we were both lucky that we kind of snagged um, a good transitional aviation jobs. Um, we both got flying jobs straight away, which was really cool. Um, and then there was this issue again, but luckily when we moved from from Hanoi back to Darwin, when I started this um, Mallard job, um, Jen had her company that she worked for in Cairns had this kind of like satellite base in Darwin as well. So once again, we'd snagged another um, lucky break and she ended up staying flying helicopters there for a few months um, as well. So it was she was pretty happy to come home and um, it was kind of great that she got back into another flying job straight away. Absolutely. that I mean, like you said, it's very tough to find a job in the same place, uh, especially if you're just both fixed wing pilots, but then you add and one's a helicopter pilot, one's a fixed wing pilot, oh, like yeah. that, and then one's a seaplane pilot. It's like you guys literally are doing the impossible. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it was tough, but um, yeah, we made it work and yeah, here we are now. So what was it like coming back? Was uh, Did you kind of have a new appreciation for flying in Australia, flying where people spoke uh, your native language, you know, your type of English? Or did it feel, did you feel more comfortable in the air? You could kind of not have to go fly in air routes the whole time. You might be able to fly more VFR. And what was it like? Just what was it like coming back? Yeah, it was great coming back to, you know, um, hometown, or not hometown, home country, but um, just being back. And a lot of the guys that I'd worked with, Currently here, I'd worked with in the Whitsunday, so it was very familiar um, kind of people to be around and whatnot. Um, I hadn't lived, I hadn't lived in Darwin before, but um, yeah, it was so good to be home. Um, the flying was completely different, you know, uh, being in foreign airspace and and um, to being in one of the most isolated locations in the world, probably where we fly today. Um, it was a very big transition, so yeah, it was it was very cool to come home. And then on top of that, you get to learn a new airplane. You get to learn how to fly the Mallard, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, up until this stage, I'd never really done any twin flying other than kind of training and a bit of private stuff here and there. But, um, yeah, so it was a, a transition onto a twin and it was a transition onto a different type of seaplane flying. You know, I'd only flown floats at that stage. So, um, you know, float a lighting gear compared to now I'm on a floating hull aircraft. So, um, that was a whole different ball game, that's for sure. And then, and then when you're strapping two twin turbines on the wings, and you know, it was a huge learning curve, that's for sure. Even with, I think I had like, what was the toughest thing for you to kind of grasp and learn? Um, water takeoffs was was a huge um, transition. This uh, this thing, the best way I can describe the mallard on takeoff, especially um, when you're light. It's just like it's like a, a riding a bucking bull, you know what I mean? Like this thing just just wants to get going, and and it's really hard to control sometimes. Um, the biggest issue is porpoising. So um, porpoising is like um, oscillations in pitch, um, like like a dolphin kind of coming up and up and out of the water all the time. You know what I mean? Um, that can get out of control really quickly on a mallard. Um, Probably on on most flying boats, it, it can a little bit on on um, on float planes, but generally it's not as anywhere as bad. Um, and because this thing gets up and out of the water so quickly um, with a light load, um, you've really got to get that step attitude um, spot on straight away. Otherwise, yeah, it can 
it can be an aborted takeoff pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, good thing if you're aborted takeoff, you can you can land hopefully right back on the water, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to worry about running out of runway. I mean, I guess there's there's times where you will run out of water, but most of the time I'm guessing you're pretty good. Yeah, unless we're unless we're kind of in rivers or in, in a tight little bay where you're taking off towards the land or something, yeah. Generally you've got a fair bit of room. Yeah. What's uh what's a typical kind of uh rotate speed or takeoff speed in that plane? Um so we're basically just like any other any other multi-engine, um, probably just something like yours. Like we, we've got um, all these takeoff performance charts and depending on weight, we have to have a V1 speed, um, a V2 speed and a V app speed. So um, that's another cool thing about this job is, is it's not just a little GA kind of, um, this feels good enough, let's rotate. Um, everything is very um, structured just like like a, 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 like a little turboprop commuter airliner, you know. So we'll generally get airborne, um, at max takeoff weight, um, about 86 knots, uh, and, um, light about 79. What about coming to the land? I'm guessing you guys have a, uh, landing speeds as well. Yeah. About 95, um, at, at heavy weight, um, down to about kind of 80, 85 or something. Yeah. Is there a difference between landing, uh, the, the mallard and say a caravan on floats? Does it feel different? Is it like a, a site? Is your site picture different or is it pretty much similar? No, totally different, man. Like, um, I mean, I, I remember hearing another one of your interviews with a, another caravan amphib guy, and um, that was a huge step. Like, caravan amphibs, if you've never seen one before on land, um, they are very high up. The where your pilot, where the pilot's eyes are, is is right up there. It's, I think it's, I've heard it's almost as high up as a seven three seven cockpit. It's crazy. So, they are so tall. <laughs> yeah, it's it's insane. But then coming onto the mallard. Um, you, you come back down a lot because you don't have floats. So you, you're basically just a, a normal tricycle twin-engine high-wing airplane, you know, um, that's just got a bit more structure under the belly. Um, but then landing on the water, it's it's so much lower. So you you really do have your bum sitting in the water almost, you know. So um, that took a while. And I think going if I was to go back to a float plane, for example, yeah, I'd definitely be very conscious of the fact that I don't drive this thing straight into the into the water. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. I'm looking up pictures of the mallet right now. And it's just such a cool looking airplane. Like there's, there's literally nothing like it. It is, it is man. Like, and, uh, you know, it's, people don't realize it was built in 1947. Um, there was only 59 of these aircraft ever built. Um, so they're a very unique aircraft as well. Um, we're the, we're the only people in the world operating them commercially. Um, which is, which is super cool. Yeah. What's uh what's maintenance like on these? I'm guessing uh, they're older planes, or they're seaplanes. Like we talked about earlier, it's very difficult to maintain a seaplane, and then you're throwing in turboprops, and you're throwing in land and sea, and just a lot of variables. Is is the maintenance quite a bit on these? Yeah, definitely. Like huge maintenance schedule. We run on a like a 200 hour um, system of maintenance. So every 50 hours, it's getting a phase kind of done. Um, so they're quite regular. I mean, aircraft wash down every every afternoon. We're doing compressor washes as well at the end, end of the day for the turbines. Um, we're kind of lucky that a lot of our flying is generally two hours one way, kind of on average. Um, so it's a lot of time in the cruise to get to where we need to go. Um, and then we do one water landing generally, maybe two, and then we're kind of coming back. So our time on the water, as opposed to say like a, a scenic operator or someone um, doing regular water flying is, is very uh, limited, um, which does help a lot. Um, 
but yeah, very maintenance heavy aircraft, that's for sure. And and these days, you know, parts are becoming a huge issue, you know, like with 59 only built, like um, getting parts and uh, we're basically having to remanufacture stuff. So I was gonna yeah, say, yeah, they don't crazy. they don't make the parts anymore. You know, you gotta you gotta no, find out either how to make them or where to get them. And I'm guessing exactly. being where you are, it might not be the easiest place to to get those parts either. No. Yeah. What's Absolutely what is not. it? What's it like on land? You know, the the wheel wells, like it's very special looking and just like how it goes in and out. What how does it operate on land? Um, just like any other um twin high wing in an airplane. It's um I mean one of the one of the unique things about us is we've got the, the nose hatch. Um so in the cockpit uh, we've got um only one set of rudder pedals that have brakes on the on the captain side. Um, the co-pilot side has this little peg, basically rudder pedals um, that fold away um, so that the co-pilot can then go under the dash through a little kind of tunnel and um, and then pop up through the nose hatch. So if we need to pick up a mooring or um, something like that, uh, we can he can get a hook out and then and then pick up that mooring. So um, so that's unique, I guess. There's, so only on land can the captain fly or a taxi. Sorry. Um, yeah, so mm. I'm, I'm I'm looking at pictures and I see a picture. It might even be your company if someone's sticking up out of the hatch. And I'm just having like mental images of seeing them crawl underneath the the, the rudder pedals and through that little cubby hole to get Man. in there. And it's yeah, I mean, be, there's there's a few videos I've got on my Instagram feed there, and there is it, it's it's a really good way of uh, like yoga is a great idea um, <laughs> to try and <laughs> to learn how to get through this thing. And, and sometimes we have freight in there as well. Like you've got to organize freight so that. Um, you know, you're basically bending your body in such ways that you can only just get through. Like you wouldn't want to have um, claustrophobia, that's for sure. Like it's pretty tight in there. No, definitely not. Um, yeah, this plane's amazing. Like it, I know it's pretty much impossible. It can never happen. But if you could ever figure out a way to fly this bad boy up to uh, EAA Oshkosh, <laughs> that'd be yeah. amazing. And it'd steal the show. But I don't know if that, that would take forever. Yeah. we Well, we've, you know, last year we, um, we actually... F- went out of our comfort zone a little bit. So the, the plane pr- primarily does uh, pearling operations. So we have these pearl farms out in, in Western Australia in a, place, in a place called the Kimberley, which is one of the most remote areas of Australia uh, and probably the world. Um, and it's generally just done for that reason. But we've been kind of branching out into some commercial work. And last year we did a, um, a flight, a safari-type flight across Australia down towards Sydney and um, we went to this um, seaplane festival called um, the Rathmines Catalina Festival, which is um, it was an old Catalina World War Two base, um, and they every every two years they run like a, a bit of an air show and, and seaplane festival. So we actually took it down there and did scenic flights um, down there, and it was the first time we'd ever ramped our aircraft. Um, so that was really cool, and um, but that was a that was a big trip for us across Australia. It was about twelve hours of flying all up to kind of get there over three or four days and we stopped in at resorts and, and stuff like that. So, um, is it a maybe, comfortable maybe plane one to day fly we might get there for a while? Um, it, it really is a comfortable plane. Yeah. Um, I, I always thought the caravan, if anyone's flown a caravan before, they are, they are such a comfortable pilot's plane, you know, like the seats are just in a perfect position. The armrests are great. You know, like everything's really good. The Mallard is very similar to that. Um, our seats only move up and down. You can move the rudder pedals on the captain's side back and forth a little bit to adjust for your kind of feet. But um, generally, like they're just they are they're a pretty tight cabin, but 
or cockpit, but they they actually are really comfortable to fly in. And you need that because you, you're flying pretty long sectors all the time. Especially when you're flying all the way to Sydney and it's taking you 12 hours. <laughs> <laughs> Please yeah. get a comfortable plane. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Um, that's cool. How many, how many mallards do you guys have? Do you have one? No, so we've got three. Um, yeah, we've had them for about 30 years. They were kind of already in Australia. They actually flew in the wet Sundays where I was at the same company 30 years ago um, as radials. And basically the pearling company bought them um, to, to do this kind of work. Um, flying in and out um, freight to the to the guys who work on the farms and and doing crew changes basically. Um, we had two pistons and one already converted turbine, and basically found out that the, the turbines um, were just so much more reliable. Um, we had a lot of breakdowns in the radials. Um, so in the late nineties, early two thousands, they did they wanted to convert the rest of the other two mallards to turbines. Um, the guy who had the STC in America um, didn't want to sell it, basically. He, I think he wanted to do all the work himself. And we wanted to buy the STC, so we thought, all right, no worries, we'll, we'll just do it ourselves. So the company actually flew the aircraft to Perth, and um, one at a time they completely redesigned um, a lot of a lot of components on it. And I think after about six years, the first Mallard came out and one thing people don't realize about our mallards, uh, they're three completely um, unique mallards to the rest of the world. So you've got the, the designator of the piston, which is the G73. Um, then you've got the turbine, which is the G73T, um, which was the, the American turbine model. And then ours is called the G73AT, which is, stands for Australian turbine. Um, so it's a completely different STC and um, it's it was kind of done – for our operations, so there's some kind of like handholds, um, certain po- at certain spots on the aircraft, so that when the aircraft tender comes aboard, they've got places to hold and and so things like that. So it's kind of designed based on what we need it to do. Um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would have never guessed that. And it sounds like that guy's a punk up in America that was holding on to the STC. <laughs> What a yeah, jerk. I think so. <laughs> What's he doing with it, right? It's like not like he's flying them too much. You don't really see those around in the States at all. Yeah. There's a couple left, but um very few, that's for sure. Uh what is so obviously we, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but what do you see your future? Could uh you see your whole career staying where you are, flying the same plane you're doing, or are you looking to kind of move up and see what's next or what if you had a glass ball and let's not pretend the whole coronavirus isn't d- totally devastating the whole world? What would be your goal, your career path that you'd want to go on? Um, I'd I'd love to, to stay in the seaplane industry in some way. Um, this, this job, I'm really comfortable in this job right now. It's 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 just so rewarding the flying that we do and. Um, it's really cool. The only downside to where we are is is Darwin is is a really hard place to to live. I guess it's very isolated. It's a capital city in Australia, but it's um we've only got something like one hundred and twenty thousand people. Um, basically, once you drive half an hour out of town, there's nothing really for eight hours, and then when you run into that, like there's that's not really much to look at, kind of thing. Um, so we are isolated. Um, the temperature here is very hot all year round. Um, so, yeah, I think a change would be would be good eventually, but uh, this it's that's a really tough question because I really don't know where the next step is. Um, it's something I've been kind of fighting with for a long time, and, and I can't really find an answer for it. So, for the meantime, I'm just going to continue um, 
doing what I'm doing and enjoying it and um, yeah, chasing the dream really. Yeah, I know, right? Well, then when on another part of it is you have to find a, a place where your wife can fly helicopters too, right? Well, she's actually so. Since she we moved here, she um she only stayed at that job for about six months. The kind of flying in Darwin um, was not really the same as what it was over in Cairns, and she didn't really like it that much. So she 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 actually she's my boss now. Not only at home, but she's my boss at work. Um, she um she she got a job with our company initially as operations manager and commercial development uh, when they were trying to expand some work for the Mallards. Um, and now she's actually the business manager of our company. So um, she's actually probably in a, in a better position now because she could probably go into some sort of management role wherever um, we ended up. Um, but, yeah, we're both, we're both loving it at the moment. We've just, just had our first kid um, four months ago, and, and so, so life's, pretty, life's pretty good, That's pretty good chill man. at the moment. So, That's awesome, yeah. yeah, other than coronavirus. But, yeah, it's, we're going pretty well. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Other than being isolated in my yeah. house for – for well, six months, but good yeah. thing you're isolated already in Darwin, right? Yeah, exactly. Good time to look after a baby. Yeah, yeah it is. You're right. What is, uh, is your wife miss flying at all? That's got, that's a hard thing to do is give up flying, especially to go kind of behind a desk or maybe kind of do some other things or is she kind of at peace with it? Um, she is, she, she, she originally was a teacher, um, just a primary school teacher. So she had already done a career change, um, to become a helicopter pilot. Um, and I think, I think after probably six years of flying, she found that probably like most of us, sometimes as pilots, we don't use our brain that much. <laughs> um, it they can be pretty mundane jobs, even even flying a helicopter, you know, which you think is, is such a more of a hands-on kind of thing. Um, so she kind of wanted more of a challenge mentally, and this job certainly gives her that challenge. That's for sure. She's coming. She's pretty stressed a lot of the time, but I think she she loves that new the new challenge of that. But um, yeah, I think I think she does. She hasn't flown helicopters for a couple of years now, and um, she I think she'd love to get back and just maybe just do something privately. Unfortunately, there's not really much to do around here. Like when we were in the Whit Sundays, we used to take helicopters out for um, a little day trip to an island, which was like point two of flying. You know, like so you could afford it. Anyone could afford that, um, and it was fun because you were going to some island, you were going to play mini golf on an island and go snorkeling or something, you know, like, but here there's nothing really to do like that. So there's no real need to go yeah. flying, I guess. <laughs> that's pretty epic. Just, no, let's go take the helicopter, go play some mini golf. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Well, it sounds like you guys have kind of just like gone with the flow and taken everything as it's come. And I, I think that's really cool. And uh, your, your career path is in great. And I know a lot of people love following you. They love seeing the type of flying you're doing and the, specifically the plane you fly because you don't get to see that very often. But uh, I mean, I'm jealous of what you do. It sounds like a lot of fun. So if you ever think that you don't want to do it anymore, just know that people would love to be where you are <laughs> doing what you do. Um, Last thing before you go is I have a quick little rapid fire section and I'm just going to name off some questions and I want you to say the quickest and first thing that comes to your mind. No need to explain it. Just say exactly what comes to your mind. Sure. All right. What's your favorite airplane overall ever? Let's say like out of uh, the airlines. Um, out of the airlines. Um, I think the the 787 is pretty cool. Actually, no, I have to go with the 747. I think if anything was going to get me to the airlines, I'd, I'd probably a 7-4. Okay. What about general aviation? So it could be like a business jet. It could be the plane you fly now. It could be a caravan on floats, just all of GA and business aviation. Yeah. I think I'm pretty biased on this one, but it's got to be the Mallard. It's, yeah. yeah it's, it's pretty, pretty epic. I'm not going <laughs> to What is the ugliest airplane you have ever seen? Ugliest? Um, I think the... 
I'm going to have to go against the Aussies here, but I'm really not a big fan of the air van. I don't know if you guys have heard of that one. I have um, heard of it. I've seen it, I think, yeah. once. It's like yeah, it's a, a pretty uh, ugly Do they train thing. jumpers out of it or is this a... Yeah, thing? they do a lot of parachuting. It's kind of like a baby caravan with, with a piston engine rather than a turbine. Um, it's, it's a pretty ugly looking machine, especially if you get it on some bad angles. Uh, here's one. What is your favorite thing about aviation? Um, the places you can go and the places you can see, I think. And, and that kind of is, is even more exposed when you're, when you're flying alleys and seaplanes. Yeah. What's something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? Um, gee, I don't know. Um, that there's not just one avenue, I guess. There's multiple avenues to go down. Would you rather fly you IFR or VFR? I get to fly both all the time. You have a preference? Um, majority of IFR flying for us is not um, in the clouds. So it's <laughs> kind of like it's, it's VMC. So um, That's funny. I love, yeah, I like IFR. I like both. I'd be happy to fly both. That works. I like that. What is the hardest approach you've ever flown? What airport? Uh, an airport. Um, oh, well, it could have been like any approach, but like just say the airport that it was at or the type of approach. I'll, I'll go, well, I'll go airport first. There's, there's two. Shoot Harbour, where I flew in the Whitsundays, was a fun airport to fly into. It had a bit of a cross-angled kind of approach. Um, and Lizard Island was a really cool and, and challenging. There was Sometimes there was actually lizards, like big goannas on the runway. <laughs> really? um, yeah. So you kind of go into beta to scare them off as you're kind of slowing down. <laughs> um, That's so funny. I'm guessing then, you definitely don't want to hit one of those when you land, huh? No, they're pretty big, pretty big buggers too. So, um, water airport. Uh, there's some pretty tough approaches in the wit Sundays, um, tucking them into into really small bays or um, yeah, into the reef or something. Yeah, you don't want to do that. That would not be good. Now we actually used to have markers for the bombies at the reef there, so that on a low tide you wouldn't actually hit any of the reef. So you'd kind of, you almost had like a runway marked out for That's you cool. on, at the reef, yeah. All right, here's another question. Uh, do you have kind of one person in the aviation industry? It could be someone that's dead or famous in Australia, the States, anywhere that you would love to have the opportunity to meet. It could be kind of like a, just a, an Instagram person you follow too. So like anyone in aviation that you would love to, the, the chance to meet. This is guy Justin Seam. <laughs> Dude, I want to go to Australia so bad, so we'll make it happen. <laughs> uh, I, I reckon I, I'm reading his book, uh, Life Story, at the moment now. I'd love to meet Neil Armstrong. That's oh, be that'd pretty. be awesome. Yeah, that would be awesome for sure. Uh, what is uh, the biggest win of your career? So, like the happiest moment you've had in your aviation career could be when you got your license, the first time you soloed. Or flying in Vietnam, surviving a, a ATC, not knowing what you're doing, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, probably getting the job in the Wit Sundays was yeah. probably the best. Yeah. What is uh, the biggest regret in your career so far? If you have one, if you don't have one, that works too. Um, not getting my helicopter license when I should have. <laughs> yeah. What's the hardest check ride you've ever done? Um, all all instrument checks are pretty pretty grueling. Um, Probably my private was, I actually failed my private on my first go. That was the only one I've ever failed. And I think it's just because you, you're so inexperienced that anything can kind of happen. Private's tough because you literally have no idea what's going to happen. You know, after your private yeah. with the other check cards, you kind of understand how a check card works. You know, you have one under your belt. 
but private, you're going up and you really are kind of just like, uh, the nerves can just really take over on a private check ride for sure. Yeah. Got no idea. What would you rather fly short legs or long legs? Um, probably short around 30 minutes, 45 yeah. minutes. What's your favorite airline livery? Qantas. Would you rather fly over mountains, beach, or the city, or say a place like Darwin where there's really nothing at all? <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely not my answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd love to fly over some mountains because I haven't seen one of them for ages. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. It's pretty flat up here. Come over, come to the states, and we'll take you around and show you around Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> I've been been looking at where you've been flying recently. That looks sick. Yeah, that was up in Utah. That was really cool. Uh, Salt Lake City area, and then I went to a place called St. George, which is in the southwest. And I yeah. think it's near a national park that we have, and it's just unbelievable. It's really cool. Uh, let's see. Let's see. I have one more, or I have two more. What's your favorite airline? Is it is it Qantas? I'm guessing. Um, to fly on, yeah, probably, probably Qantas. Got to represent, man. I understand. We, we I don't, we don't get a lot of, we don't get a lot of international visitors where I am. Um, <laughs> Got to so rely yeah, on Qantas. them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. All right, last one is: Would you rather fly a Piper or a Cessna for uh, a small GA aircraft or an Airbus? Cessna, whatever you. <laughs> no, not an Airbus. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you survived, man. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, it's a lot of fun talking to you. And I've been following you for for quite some time now. And every time I see you post a picture of that Mallard, it makes me want to move out there and go f- try to fly that airplane because it's just so cool what you do. So continue doing what you're doing, man. And uh, I love it, man. Just keep going and keep grinding. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks very much. Appreciate all the support and, and to everyone out there who who follows me. And um, you know, that's I think that's why I put up a lot of this stuff is because people love seeing it and it's very unique. So yeah, hopefully I can keep doing it and absolutely keep inspiring people. You got it, man. Keep at it. And uh, yeah, have fun with your boss and she's your wife. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on and I have a good one. I know it's early there, so drink some coffee before you got to go to work. I might go back to bed, hey? <laughs> All right, man. We'll see you later. <laughs> Thank you. AV Nation, thank you so much for listening to episode number 104 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. It was a fun talk with Daniel just to hear about what it's like to fly in Australia, how to get your license, especially where he came from and where he lives and flies now, one of the most remote places in the world. And then going to Vietnam to go fly. His wife's a helicopter pilot, which I think would be cool to have her on the podcast. So we need to we need to we need to drop that seed right now and get her on so we can tell that story. But AV Nation, thank you so much. Leave us a review, follow us on Instagram at Pilot the Pilot. Check out the hats and the t-shirt shop pilotthepilot.com. Aviation, I hope you guys all are staying safe. And as always, happy flying.